And now, coming to you from the- That didn't work well. And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with a very special guest, Sarah Pinsker, on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome back, Sarah. It's been a couple of years, I guess. We talked about, I think, a song for a new day way back when. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I might have done one of the the Short ten minute one. ones you did yeah, as well. One. But but yeah, it's been a while since we had a long conversation for sure. And now you've got the new collection out, which is it turns out only out a couple of weeks, called Lost Places, which is second collection after sooner or later everything falls into the sea, which suggests with the new title that everything has fallen into the sea and now they're lost places. Yeah, now that you now that you say that, I guess I could continue on a theme and, <laughs> and things could get more and more lost or perhaps even found again <laughs> so how have you been what have you been doing for low these for these last several years since you know last we spoke uh writing in theory i think i, I think i write <laughs> and um I've, I've been doing a lot of teaching actually which wasn't something i was doing uh much before the pandemic but i've done a lot of it in the last few years and and i'm enjoying enjoying the hell out of that um but I have to. I'm still looking for the right balance between that and writing. And it's teaching writing, or uh, just yeah, teaching general? Yeah, yeah. I'm teaching uh, undergrad fiction workshops, uh, mostly mostly uh, advanced workshops. So it's uh, mostly seniors uh, in a in a writing program. Uh, they're they're terrific writers. And I did a couple of stints uh, working for Humanities Tennessee with uh, high school high school writers in a writing camp. And uh, and I've worked. I've done a little bit of um, teaching for Cat Rambo and for um, uh, Clarion West for the uh, by which I mean the, for the online courses. I've found that when you're forced uh, to when you're teaching, you're forced to explain what you do. Has teaching changed how you approach your own writing? I think it's given me a lot to think about. Um, certainly, in looking for my own ways to explain things, so I'm not. Uh, just regurgitating the great things that other people have come up with and in reading every every craft book under the sun i think i've i've definitely come away with some new stuff um a lot of, a lot in the way of uh approaching revision approaching dialogue um i think i think i've yeah I, there, there are things that i think i was doing naturally that now i do with a little bit uh, when i was lucky and sometimes i missed uh i do with a little bit more uh, care now do you find students in the university classes more interested in in mainstream fiction than in the clarion classes is there a different kind of audience for those kinds of teaching well the so the 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 clarion and and rambo classes are are definitely speculative writers who are you know at various stages and looking to improve specific skills um and some of them are already terrific and are just you know looking for ways to inspire themselves uh and uh my my undergrads i think part of why i was hired was was actually because i because i am in specfic and and they rightly recognize that this, that's what the students are interested in writing right now um so i try to expose them to a wide range of stuff um though the, a lot of them have read but not read wild, widely in our field or um have read yeah, and some of them haven't read widely in any field, so so it's it you know it's a matter of exposing them to various things. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of manga readers who don't read as much prose. 
Um, there's a lot of, I get screenwriters these days, there's comics writers, there's, there's all kinds of things. Um, and then they're the, then they're the ones who come in, like telling me, you know, that they're already in love with uh, Carmen Maria Machado and Kelly Link, and and you know, those uh, those those are um, already already in the in the system and already thinking about things the way I want them to think about things. So that's good. <laughs> oh. Well, we should talk about your story collection because uh, I, I I was looking at it again, and I it's it's fascinating to me because. When you put your first story collection out, and I remember this because I looked up my review of it, you had like 40 stories out, and I think you put a dozen of them in, uh, which I admire, and I always admire when writers do that, as opposed to when you have 12 stories, put out a book, no matter how good the stories are. Uh, And my theory of story collections is this. The first collection is to tell people who you are, to show your, your breadth and so forth and so on. Uh, the second collection, in my theory, and you can completely refute this because I have no evidence for it whatsoever, the second collection is stuff that you just like. The second collection is more for yourself than for introducing yourself to the world. I think I think that's a reasonable theory. I, um, I think the second collection also you can... Uh, I, I think you're right about the first one being an introduction to your work. Um, the, sec- the second one, I've seen different people approach differently, I guess, but... I, I think we approached it as vaguely thematic, like th- that I that I had enough stories both after the first one was published and and moving backwards a little th- things that hadn't fit into the first one, but that I that I liked a lot that that made sense in this book, which which is a, a weird book. Like it's got it's got some you know future stuff and some secondary world stuff and some mm-hmm. horror and some fantasy and. It, it, it's it's a weird mix, but I I feel like there is something vaguely thematic um, working with the working with the title very loosely, and I think yeah. maybe you don't have as much of a chance to do that with the first collection. Well, there, I, I, I should I mean, admit, by the way, that that idea I just remembered I completely stole it from Ken Liu, who more or less said that in his second collection. But I've been using it as a theory ever since. But yeah, that's the other thing I think is fascinating are the connections, sometimes subterranean connections, sometimes like rhizome connections between stories, you'll have the same character show up uh, in a couple of stories and an allusion to something in another story. And it's, I don't think it's, I'm sure it's intentional, but I don't think it's planned out as much as it could be. Uh, Nina Allen does this all the time. She's just drawing connections between, and so you read a collection of hers like Stardust and turns out every story is connected to every other story. And I have a sense that you're having more fun with that and not really trying to make a giant metafictional tree root system out of a collection. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, my stuff isn't, uh, doesn't exist in like a David Mitchell yeah. uh, universe of all, all of its own. But, but uh, I think that I do. Yeah. There, there are echoes. I think that, I think there are thematic echoes and sometimes there, there are characters who pop up here and there. Which is which is just fun when, when you can be a little bit referential, but um, I, I, like I've 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 been throwing narwhals in for fun also, but um, uh, the I think some of it is just games you play to to keep yourself entertained, um, but I, I'm not going for some some grand uh, universe. Yeah, but well, still, was there a, an approach to compiling this particular to, to, to the book? I mean, you go back a couple of years. Um, the novel where our satellites had come out 
And now, like, this is the next thing. What, you know, at what point were you aware this was going to be the next book and you were going to be putting this together? I think there are two things. One is that I'm working on a novel that's taking me some time um, that, that I really, I, I wanted to do on spec. I didn't want to be beholden to a contract for it. Um, and one is that I had a bunch of stories that I wanted to see in print. Uh, I that I, I thought I had enough al- enough stuff that was worth compiling already. Um, and well, you're also, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, I was, the, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I, we looked at these stories and the interest, the, the kind of interesting thing is uh, there's one story in here that I had written for the first book and Gavin and Kelly had said, this doesn't belong. And I said, but I wrote it for this book. I really want it in here. And they said, it doesn't belong. <laughs> and, um, and they held fast and, and I, I got a bunch of advocates on my side. I tried making a case um, and, <laughs> Nothing moved them, and ultimately, you know, I let it go. And but it wasn't that they hated the story; it was that they they felt strongly it 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 didn't fit the first book, and or or that it didn't it shouldn't be the original in the first book was perhaps what they were doing. So they said, write a different original, and I wrote another original, and this one found a good home, and and uh, then I put it on the on the list of stories for this and they accepted it. So it wasn't, and it makes perfect sense in, in this book. Um, and I think it was just a matter of, of not fitting whatever weird thesis that, that book had um, and, and belonging better to this one. Um, but, but even, even the, the process of trying to find a story that made sense in this book, even before we had the title, I knew what I was writing as the original for this one. And I knew it would belong. And I knew I wanted I wanted it to sort of help ground everything else, and and I knew the story that would do that. So so um, there was there was a little bit of a, a deliberate attempt to to anchor this one with the original. Do you find looking back at the books that you've done, the thesis for the book becomes clearer over time, or is it something that you feel you start with? I mean. From uh, one uh, outsider's look at Lost Places, it's sort of like the next collection, including the award winners, but it's also something else. Is it something that becomes more clear to you, do you think? I thought this one, uh, this one made itself clear. Um, if, if we're, I'm assuming we're disregarding novels in this question. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not great at, at, I don't think about theme as I write a novel. I, at least not in the first draft. In the first draft, I'm talking to the characters and they're talking to me and I'm trying to figure out what, um, what it is they want to do and what they have to say. And, and there, there's unconscious forces at work. Um, and, and second and third drafts are where I start knowing what I'm doing and what the book is about. And then you can start layering, layering those things in as you understand what it is you're saying. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, I think there are probably people who do that more deliberately than me. And there are people who, who certainly outline and, and, and that sort of thing and, and, <laughs> and probably have a more, more coherent idea of what their book is to begin with. But, but I, I'm very much a discovery writer and I, I like the, I like the journey. So, so I'm prepared to, for the book to tell me what it is. Well, one advantage for this book coming out when it does now is that uh, the, it's not the anchor story, but it's probably the, one of the two best known stories in it is where our Oakland hearts together, which won a trifecta last year, like 
like won four awards and got two more nominees nominations, uh, and and that for a story which in form is extremely unusual. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that one would work in book form. To be honest, uh, it, it kind of eats up a lot of page uh, because of the the web form, which which actually it, it reminds me of uh, printing chords printing chords and lyrics off of off of music websites in the in the 90s uh when when one song would take you know the transcription would take like 10 pages just because you know line after line was eaten by guitar string after guitar string yeah, yeah, yeah. and um yeah that and and it looked a little bit like that but they they managed to make it uh much cleaner so well, i was it, impressed it, yeah it, it, it did occur to me that if, if this had been if you'd written this story 50 years ago you would have been talking about sing out magazine or one of the folk magazines that printed uh, lyrics and traced things and that. Now it's all, of course, it's all a website, which works very much the same way, but it's still, um, I, I think it works very well in print, but I think it could have worked that way with a different media had you written it decades ago. Right. Although, although there's a, there's a lack of immediacy like in, in the magazines, it would be like, you know, month after month of people responding to month, each other. Right. Not, um, but yeah. Yeah, I do see your point. And well, yeah, I think another... it would have been a fun there there are a lot of forms that story could have taken. Oh. Yeah. But I want I'll, I'll mention another story I like because I have a specific question about it and it's one of the one of the characters that shows up in two stories. And this is your Gershwin story and I'm this is a thing I'm complaining about your titles right now. I have to hold the book in front of me because the <laughs> titles are too complicated to remember. This is a story. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, go ahead. Uh, oh, I, I was just going to say some um, some of the titles uh, I do I do regret a little when I'm writing a biography that has to fit into a hundred words and all of my titles take up <laughs> a tenth of that in themselves. I do I do have regrets, but sorry, what go on? <laughs> and some of the titles are a quotation. This I gather is an actual quotation. I frequently hear music in the very heart of noise, which apparently is something that Gershwin actually said. Um, yes, but it's also uh, structurally a very. It, it looked to me like you were just having the most fun you could have with the New York music scene over about a century, um, because everybody is in it from Gershwin to uh, Leonard Cohen, and uh, I don't know, uh, and 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 yet there's a character in it uh, who shows up again in another story named Bess Norris. Is that right? Bess, Bess Morris, Morris. Yeah. Bess Morris. Uh, who's a fictional character in the middle of all these real people. So my question is, okay, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Yes, I am. Have you ever heard of a songwriter named Anne Ronell? Uh, I, say, say the name again. Ronell, R-O-N-E-L-L. Uh, she, she was, unless she, one, of the, one of the Tin Pan Alley women? Yeah, she, was, uh, she yeah. wrote a song called Willow Weep for Me. Uh, yeah, she, she had, I think there was a, a documentary that included her in it a little while ago. There might have been. There was. Uh, she was one. Of, she was a friend of Gershwin's. Um, she, her, her career more or less matches the career of Bess Morris. She's a, a few years later. Her, her, her two claims to fame are the song "Willow Weep to Me," which was recorded by like everybody, Billie Holiday, and she wrote part of the lyrics for "Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf." And I thought, I thought at first, okay, maybe Bess Morris is a version of her because there was there were a handful of women songwriters. Uh, whose careers lasted that long. And then Bess Morris shows up as a kind of neighbor in uh, another story, the one about the guy in Douglas Fairbanks, 
I'm sorry. I'm referring to your stories as though they were Seinfeld episodes now. Um, it's fine. What's the, okay. But at any rate, I want to see more about Besno. Uh, you will. I think she's an interesting character. Uh, you, you, you actually will. Uh, I, I promise you that. Um, but, but uh, I, I, yeah, she isn't meant to be a direct analog of anyone in particular. But uh, I did have a, a lot of fun writing that story. And it came directly from a... Um, I found a, uh, I was I was sort of searching for a story to bring to Sycamore Hill that year, and I couldn't think of what I wanted to write. And I went to the library and I started pulling nonfiction off the shelf, which is what I I do when I'm when I'm getting desperate. And I found a walking tour of New York City. It was a, a book with a whole bunch of suggested walking tours. And and what I realized in reading this was the thing about a walking tour is. Um, it slices through time because you're like when, when they, if you confine yourself to a neighborhood, if it's, if it's arranged by neighborhood instead of by uh, you could have the, like the jazz tour of New York and it'll be, and it'll take you to Harlem and it'll take you to the fifties and it'll take you to, you know, all these different clubs. Um, But, but if you have it organized by neighborhood, then it's necessarily a slice through time. And they'll say, um, and this is this is where James Dean lived, and across the street here's Maya Angelou, and across the street here's Felissa Rashad, and here's you know, and and, and you have these these bizarre slices through time, and 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 then I just started trying to apply weird jazz, just uh, like jazz patterns to a story, um, and I read it at ICFA a few years ago, and I knew I only had uh, you know 15 minutes and. And I knew how long that story takes to read. So I, what I did was I read the beginning and then I cut up all of the middle and I gave all of the scenes numbers. And then I had people read, like shout out a number and I would read that scene and discard it. And we, and then I just had three anchors that I wanted to get to. And the whole thing worked in a different order. So it was sort of a, a David Bowie decoupage too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you've been right. You're into the second decade of your, your writing career. Now you've won awards. You've got now your fourth book out. Have the prompts to get you started writing changed, changed over time? Cause I mean, you're talking now about writing for workshops, writing for Sycamore Hill, getting things done. Has what prompt you to get started on something actually changed because now that you're living the life of a writer in the way that you are? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I think I'm still drawn to the same type of, like, I think the thing that I've discovered with writing, and this is something I was never able to get to with my songwriting. Um, the thing I've discovered with writing is that I can always find a story, uh, mm-hmm. th- that, that, I don't have to rely on a muse that I don't have to wait for lightning to strike. And I think I, when I started, I still had that feeling. So I was very reliant on external prompts. Uh, And, and I think over time I've discovered that I can be my own prompt that I can, that I know how to seek things out and recognize where the story is in them. Mm -hmm. And I think I have a little more confidence in that. And having said that, I need to find a story for Sycamore Hill this year. So, um, so I expect I'll be uh, going. No, I, I think I know what it is because I, I was at the museum a few weeks ago and I made some notes. And and I think, I think I know what it is. But but again, that that's past me leaving me. Is that I think uh, I trust her. We'll see. To me, to me, the follow-on question from that would be. 
When any writer starts out at the very beginning of the idea of becoming a writer and starting to work up what they're going to do, they have to work through their influences. They have to learn who they are and what they're going to write about. After this amount of time, after 10 years of a professional career and all the time that precedes that first publication, do you feel you have a clearer idea of what a Sarah Pinsker story is? I think I was lucky in that I came into this field more fully formed than some people do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's because I, I had worked some of that stuff out in songwriting. Uh, so, so, and like a lot of my juvenilia mm -hmm. occurred, occurred long <laughs> before I started, like I, I was submitting stuff. Sure. To, to the magazines when I was 13 and 14 um, mm -hmm. that I'm very glad never made it. And, and when I look at it, they're, you know, they're actually decent as story, decent enough. Like I, I can, I can see myself in them, but they're, uh, I mean, they're, they're well formed, but I can't see my voice in them yet. They, they, mm -hmm. they echo everything I had read up into that point. And I think that, that my songwriting helped give me a voice that, that, I won't say it was quite fully formed, but it was pretty solid by the time I started publishing stories. Because I read, I read my early pro sales, sure. and and I I am not embarrassed. By, you know, they they yeah, yeah. they're pretty solid, and, and uh, you know they they were in the first collection, a couple of them, and I I don't think mm. I don't I think they hold up. Uh, I'm a stretch of highway two lanes wide, and and um, enjoy with the architect in the treehouse. Uh, I, I, mm. I think that they hold up. And those are, that's like my second and third story. So do you feel well, you that there's you a have, point? You, you see students who now, I, I guess, want to be Carmen Machado or want to be Kelly Link. And I've talked to people who want to be Jeffrey Ford. Did you have somebody you wanted to be when you were just starting out? Uh, Le, Le Guin. <laughs> Why not aim high? Why not aim high? <laughs> Do you, do you feel there's a point looking back where you feel you hit your straps? And Because, I mean, what I've noticed with writers, writers believe when I talk to them at the beginning of their careers that they're on a smooth curve of improvement when, in fact, it's a, a set, it, it seems to me it's a series of herky-jerky herky steps. You kind of go blah, 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 but then you hit something that forces you to learn how to do something better, and everything after that is that much better, and that happens again and again. I, I was actually having that conversation with my agent the other day about the concept of leveling up. She said she doesn't believe in the concept of leveling up. And I was thinking about it. Um, but I feel like, I feel like you do have to learn. There's a lot of things you have to learn new for each project and they're mm -hmm. built on building blocks that you have. Sure. But, but I've, for me, there've been a lot of, uh, there've been a lot of things that I've had to put aside until I thought I was the writer who could write them. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I've there, there's a weird if you actually put together a timeline of when I started some of these stories compared to where when I finished them. Uh, for some of them, it's years. Uh, uh, Two Truths and a Lie was my uh, my college senior project, except it wasn't. There was the the seed the seed of it was my college senior project, and then. I forgot about it for 20 years until until I needed a story for Sycamore Hill, and uh, I, I vaguely remembered it. And the the memory of it is what became the story. 
like the the memory of having written a story about uh this about this weird tv show became the story rather than the tv show itself if that mm-hmm. yeah. um so that one that one took me 20 years to figure out how to write uh we are satellites i started 10 years ago and or 10 years before it was published and and put aside because i didn't know how to write it yet i knew there that some weird things were going to happen and i couldn't figure out what they how to do it um and I, I I didn't have the confidence that you could do the things I wanted to do in a novel. So it took, I, I guess that might be the answer to that, that, that every project is its own, but I don't ever trust that I know how to write the next thing. Um, I, I trust that I can find my way to it. I try, but sometimes I think a lot of the time and a lot, a lot of the reason that, that some of my stories end up in weird formats is because I have the idea and then I try to think of what is how does this story want to be told? And sometimes that involves learning something new um, or, or training myself to. I think that's one of the surprises. One of the nice surprises that a reader gets is that a story, one of your stories turns out not necessarily to be the story that it looked like it was going to be at the beginning. You mentioned Two Truths and a Lie, which for the first several pages looks like a story about hoarding and in fact is a story about hoarding and the, what I think of as crypto television, because there is a, there are a few stories about mysterious old TV shows, um, and uh, it, 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 so so the the story shifts. I shouldn't say it shifts. The initial story is enveloped in a larger story, and that happens with uh, um, okay. The the Girl Scout story is called Science Facts. Am I right? Yeah. And that Only starts out words. like a, it's it's a classic Twilight Zone episode. A bunch of girls go on a hike and they come back, and they've been missing for decades. Only that's not really the story. That's the story later envelops that. So you've got these stories within stories within stories uh, that always kind of keep, I think, a reader sort of delightfully off balance. I do like poking at at stories within stories, I guess. Because, I mean, that's, I think it's one of those things that we leave out of fiction sometimes, the same as we leave out going to the bathroom you know there are bodily functions that we leave out of out of stories yeah. uh not not that they don't exist but the, the you know they just are aren't part of the day that we want to tell but sometimes sometimes the storytelling is really interesting and it's you know it's part of the human condition and it's part of of how like we all narrate our lives in some way or another and 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 seeing how the characters do that and and what stories they recognize within themselves, I, th- I think, can be really interesting too. I, I was going to say there was a. I, I remember talking. I was talking about Jonathan Carroll, who does this sort of thing a lot, where you've got uh, essentially a scene, let's say a photograph, and there used to be a, a, a routine that David Letterman would do. It'd show up a, a a news photograph of something with a bunch of diplomats or something, and there'd be a weird-looking guy in the background, and Letterman would say, "What about that guy?" What's that guy's story? And I get us, and, and I was saying this in terms of um, Carol because he does this all the time. But I see that you're doing it sometimes too. That there's a character we don't know is the important character in the story, who later moves into the foreground. So you're always asking, "What about that guy or that one?" Yeah, that I guess person? that's true. I hadn't really thought about that. I'm a huge Jonathan Carroll fan. Um, so yeah, huh? But I hadn't applied that to myself there is that's why it's fun to read your reviews it's fun to... <laughs> <laughs> well there's uh, the, the the roadside attraction story in the first collection um 
And again, I apologize because I'm terrible on titles, and I'm especially terrible on your title. But you should read Jonathan Carroll's Mr. Breakfast because he covers some similar territory to that story. I, I have it behind me. Uh, I just okay. I forgot I had bought it, and I found it the other day. So, so that is on my high on my list. You've been writing science fiction and fantasy now for your whole career. Has how you think about science fiction and fantasy as tools to use to tell stories changed? Oh, that's an. Um, I don't. I, I think I'm. I'm not sure. I have an answer to that. Uh, I. I think I like thinking about harnessing tropes more than I used to. I, I think. I think at the beginning you're very. Uh, bent on writing things that no one has written before. Um, but then <laughs> at some point you realize a lot has been written, but maybe there's still something new hidden within the old story. I, I don't, I don't, Yeah, that might be an answer. I mean, I realize it's a little bit like asking a fish how they feel about water, right? It's like, not only do you, I, I assume, primarily read science fiction and fantasy, and you're surrounded socially by people who are working in science fiction, and it's how you do so, sort of stopping and thinking about it. But, you know, on one hand, it is a storytelling tool that you're choosing to use when you could use anything at all to examine sort of the ideas that you, that you have that you want to deal with. Um and so it's. I think it's an, an interesting thing to think about. The the expanded palette of science fiction fantasy is is part of what's always appealed to me. And I think when I, you know, I, I've played around with with realist fiction as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and I love a good mystery. Um, but but when I, it it just seems to me like it like if you have this beautiful array of colors in front of you. Uh, to reduce yourself back down to to you know a handful of you know primary colors uh, just just feels just feels like a loss. Um, yeah, th- there's you know, and some of my stories are only only slightly. You, you know, people have argued they aren't genre. The 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 Gershwin one. Uh, I had a lot of people saying, "What's the genre about this?" When I can tell you exactly what's genre about it, but um, uh, I. I yeah, I think that they that there there's just so much fun to be had, joy to be had, room to be explored. I I, I don't mind doing stuff that hues fairly close to reality, but but then then I start wanting to to use those other colors. But I think Fair looking enough. at some of these classic tropes, uh, if you allow me to use the word, is it's it's kind of kind of a challenge for a writer who wants to reinvent things. I'm going back to your first collection again, but you have a generation starships. I mean, it's like there was a period of time when anybody who was going to have a career in science fiction had to do a generation starship. Yours is the only one that has a fiddler in it that I can think of. Um, the, the, the business about uh, history, the, the, teaching history turns out to be really more the theme of the story than the generation starship. But the generation starship is a great way to, to write a new story. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that theme because there are, any number of people who have reinvented that idea by saying, look, I can do this with that. It's like, you're right, it's like a certain color that's been overused, but I can still do something new with it. River Solomon and Unkindness of Ghosts is another generation starship story that's completely original and completely familiar at the same time. Yeah, and I think uh, Rebecca Campbell has written a couple of stories that had music and uh, fid- fiddles and possibly possibly even fiddles and a generation ship uh, like a year around the around the same time, but slightly after mine. Like I think we must have written them concurrently, but but uh, 
uh, Rebecca writes music in fiction really well. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think the music has helped. Like, I think that's also added some, some color. Again, I'll go back to the colors to the palette, but even though then we're really mixing metaphors. Um, yeah. Some, some extra notes to the scale. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I, I think there's still stories to tell. Like, play, even playing with the tropes. Uh, Kelly Link had a really good generationship story in the, in the Bradbury anthology. Yeah. I think there's a lot of room to play with old ideas you used music obviously this came up with song for a new day and with the, the the story that preceded it but one of the things which is it strikes me as less common is describing the experience of musical performance not just using music as a kind of narrative metaphor but what it's like to be on stage and for that matter what it's like to be on a holo stage in other words you're taking it's, it seems to me you couldn't write the kinds of experience that you're talking about in song for a new day if you didn't have the experience of performing before a live audience and then extrapolating from that to imagine what it would be like to perform for kind of a holographic audience. Yeah, I think uh, that's my, my purest, write what you know. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the experiences in that are distilled from my own. Um, not, nece- not necessarily autobiographical one for one, but, but I'd, I worked really hard on on trying to translate some of those things to the page, and and the way that I the, the way that I figured out to approach it was, um, you can't make people hear what you're hearing, but you can but you can tell people what it, what it feels like to perform it, and you can tell people what it was like to experience it, and somewhere in between those, they overlay their own idea of what the music sounds like and it's better for that um and yeah i think i think any any screen version would 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 lose a little of that because because whatever band you had playing would would then become the band uh, you know forever after that um and people would either like it or hate it but i love the fact that that uh when people write to me about that book they say and i know exactly what this band sounds like uh, and and the range is huge, like, and the, you know they tell me exactly what it sounds like, and it sounds like exactly what they want it to sound like. So, um, yeah, but but that gets across to them what it feels like that excitement of being in the audience, or that excitement of what it must be like to be in that band. They can see it when they when they choose the band. I think it's fair to say that you're objectively speaking at the forefront of your generation of science fiction and fantasy writers. You've been on every major award ballot. For the last decade and a half, you've won almost all of the major award, awards in the field. And in terms of being recognized by your fellow writers, I mean, sort of, I think it's like a nine or 10 year streak when you're on the Nebula ballot every year and win four times. And you're also plainly ensconced in thinking and working in the area. Do you, do you think science fiction and fantasy has changed in the 10 years or so that you've been active? Well, and and, and I was a reader for a long, long time before that. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm getting over that, that uh, list of things you just <laughs> put in front of me. Um, but, I mean, I think it's always changing, and I think it has continued to change. Um, I think we're hearing from voices we didn't hear from before and we're hearing from those voices more regularly. And I think that's a very, very good thing. I, I think there are a, a lot of stories uh, in the magazines right now that I've truly never read before um, perspectives that, that I have not had the good fortune to, 
to come across. And I, I think all of that is is nothing but good. Does that impact your own choice of perspectives for the stories you're telling? Do you find yourself subconsciously or otherwise, when you look back on it, looking to bring different perspectives within your own context into the stories you're telling? I'm not sure that it does. I mean, I'm I'm always looking for the right the right voice, the right vehicle for that particular sure. story. Um, but and I, yeah, maybe there maybe there are stories that I would choose not to tell or perspectives I, I might choose not to use. But I I don't know that I've run into that in as anything more than theoretical. Mm-hmm. Um, the the stories that that I feel that I can use my voice for tend to show themselves to to me in that way. If that makes sense, it does. Well, and think, do you think uh, that? Sorry. No, you go ahead. Do you think that um, what we would think of as the science fiction and fantasy field, editors, publishers, and readers are more receptive to a variety of perspectives than they once? Because, I mean, I tend to think they are, but I also tend to think that there's a slight element of people in the, in the field, ourselves included, Gary and I included, or me included, uh, being too willing to pat ourselves on the back for this when we're still on a journey towards being more open to a, a variety of perspectives. It's definitely a journey, uh, but I, I, I think there have been strides. Uh, I think people are more aware. I, I think people are more aware of it. I think that there, uh, there have been there. There are a lot of conversations going on about about gatekeeping and who exactly is doing the gatekeeping and who is, um, uh, you know, who is doing the reviewing and who is doing the the editing and and uh, who has the opportunity to go to the workshops and all all of those are, are uh, good conversations to have and and I think I think the way to avoid the back padding is to to keep having the conversations um, and to make sure that that it's not only the back patters who who uh, are in the conversation. I think one of the things that. Uh... I've noticed, and, and I notice this because I'm getting really old, uh, is that there are one, one of the things I'm seeing more and more, and I'm finding myself inordinately grateful for it, are older protagonists. The new, the new Cory Doctorow novel has a 67-year-old forensic accountant. And again, go, to go back to Lost Places, and wait a minute, this time I can actually recall the titles because you've got two stories that deal with... Um, really octogenarians. There's the Escape from Carrying Seasons, which is kind of a science fiction adventure of escaping from... It, it reminded me of a Jack Williamson story of an overprotective society in, 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 in retirement homes. And the other one, which I thought was just gorgeous, was Remember This For Me, which is about uh, losing your faculties as, as you age, but still retaining uh, the vision to create art or the the impulse to create art or the capacity to create art, which makes a really interesting distinction between um, memory and creativity. And memory shows up a lot in a lot of your fiction, it seems. And it seems that when you're considering this with, with older people, you're, uh, you're addressing an audience that is as underrepresented in science fiction of the past as all the other uh, underrepresented audiences are. Yeah, I... I uh... I agree with you. I'm not, I was searching for the question, um, but but I do think that there there has been a lack of older protagonists, and maybe 
maybe some of us are, you know, it, it can be daunting to, just as it's daunting to write anyone who isn't you, it can be daunting to oh, attempt yeah. um, to put yourself in other shoes. And I think maybe there's some stigma where, where people think it would be less exciting somehow or, or limiting. Um, but yeah, I mean, those those two stories couldn't have been told by anyone else. And, and uh, I think, yeah, I, I would love to see more stories of, of older protagonists. I, I enjoy well, I mean, reading them. For one thing, they're, they're one, at least in one of them. Uh, it, it's, it's an adventure story in which somebody who you don't expect to be able to do what she does, does what she does. And uh, I say, I'm, I'm just speaking this from a point of view of age, somebody who's not, um, and if, if, if you're if you're an aging woman, you pretty much have a choice between people who make movies about older actresses. You have to be you're, you're Jane Fonda or Lily Tomlin or uh, Candace Bergen or whatever. She's none of those things. She's her own character, and I think that's what makes it a credible story, and not not a story about age ageism or liberation, but a story about a, a character who still has agency. And, and and that seems to be an important theme in both of those stories. Yeah, and I think I think in particular for her, I want I think I think there's a tendency if you think about the Golden Girls and you realize they were they were only like those actresses were fifty fifty five when no, right. when that show started, exactly. right. and, and they look so much older. Like 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 even right from the beginning, like they're they're there's a shorthand there that to me immediately aged them 20 years. Um, uh, some combination of Florida and pastel and the, the particular, yeah. um, the, the furniture and everything. Um, but I was thinking about this story in terms of when would this happen? And, you know, this, this woman was one of the ones who, who created this uh, yeah. development that she lives in. Um, and she, you know, she, she was one of the ones designing it and figuring out what would work. And so, and, and, and part of her payment was that she got a spot in the place. Um, so she knows what it's supposed to be and she knows what, what it isn't. So it had to be her. Um, but that also means that she's, you know, an, um, a much older woman, but an older woman who knows tech and who knows what, you know, she's, she's savvy. And uh, I, I wanted to make sure, I thought that was, that was a, a fun perspective and, and, not an unrealistic one. Um, and remember this for me. Uh, I was really happy to get that into here because it appeared in an anthology that that just did not. I, I don't know that it, it ever. Like I, I never saw it in a in a dealer's room, even much less a bookstore. And I I I learned from that. You know, sometimes uh, maybe don't write an original for for an anthology if you don't know the people who are doing it. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful book. They they just it, unfortunately it it didn't go anywhere, and uh, so I was just really really happy to to find that book a home here and and a perfect home because it uh, it was one of, it's another one that just fit the weird theme of this book so well. Is it harder to find places to put stories where readers can find them? Uh, for me, I've been lucky, and I can say it it hasn't been because because you know i've i've been able to put stories with with uncanny and asimovs and fnsf for and sure. yeah. com. um uh i find that for my students it, it's a little tough right now when, when i'm thinking about where should i tell them to send this like when i see a story i really like who's open right now beneath ceaseless skies is, is open 
um, you know, Clark's world is probably open. FNS, FNS, Asimov's are open, but, but uh, a lot of the magazines that would be good homes and that I can like that the voice is right. I may have to tell them you're going to have to wait six months and then there's going to be an eight day window. If you like, if you haven't sent this somewhere else already, there'll be an eight day window where you can send this out. And that's a little frustrating. Yeah, um, I, I know that I, I'm in a place of privilege when it comes to placing my stories now. Um, well, well, you are now, but I mean, you weren't when you started out, oh, but no, I guess what I, I'm thinking is, it's this thing where I mean, uh, I mean, you're talking about the anthology and how it was nice, and great to have the story in there, but it wasn't seen there. And I found when I was talking to to write young writers at uh, workshops I've been to that the primary thing that I thought would be the driving thing is trying to give your story a chance to be seen because so many of the markets that exist, particularly in print, are they're transitory. Print may be permanent, but also it's like it's temporarily in in, in your focus, and then it disappears. And that's got to be a, a a real consideration. Yeah, I, I I think it is. There's there's a lot of considerations. Uh, if if you get to pick and choose, um, I try to strike a balance. And there, I think yeah, it comes down for me to like like where will it be seen? And then sometimes it comes down to who do I want to work with? I mean. When you know when you have an anthology uh, coming, uh, you know you always have great themes. Um, there, the, uh, Ellen has great themes. Um, there, there are people who who I would definitely jump to work with or work with again. Um, even though you know there's a risk, there's always a risk with anthologies. I think. Um, sure. And is there also, uh, a, uh, also a risk that the theme boxes you, and then you? don't feel you can reuse the story later very well? That can be a risk if it's a really specific theme. And if if you think that, if you're being solicited, it's not a big deal because hopefully yeah. it'll make it in there. Um, if you're writing to a themed anthology uh, to an open call, there's a very large risk that if it isn't taken, that story isn't going anywhere for years. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely a risk. Um, and, and something I would encourage people to consider when they, when they apply for stuff. I, I think that is an issue. I had something else. I guess, to say. Uh, uh, another factor that probably affects the life of short stories, and I don't know if it's as important as it used to be, but there are two things that seems to me to bring additional readers. One is if you get into a year's best anthology or a theme anthology or that or a reprint anthology, um, then obviously that brings a bunch. But I'm thinking of, again, where Oak and Hearts do gather. Once you get on a bunch of ballots, a lot of people are going to look up that story who wouldn't have seen it in the first first place. So, so the story kind of has, especially a story which remains online for years, builds up an audience over time with award nominations, with uh, award wins, with uh, best of the year recommended lists and so forth, locus recommended lists and that sort of thing. So it's very difficult, it seems to me, for you as an author to figure out how many people are reading a story over the, let's say, the, li the lifetime of the story, the first decade of the story. Um, for example, to go back to the story that essentially is set in the same world as uh, the, uh, Song for a New Day, the one that was... Um, in your first collection. Our, Our Lady um, of the Open Road, yeah. Our Lady of the Open Road, yeah. Which did get awards, as I recall. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and did, did you find that that story has had additional life because of the novel? Or did the novel just kind of replace the story? Uh, the, since, the, since the story is not in the novel, 
I was right. able to point back to it. So sometimes when people said, I wish there was a sequel, I wish there was this, I was able to say there's actually three other, th I think it's three other stories uh, in that world. Uh hidden in various places and that one isn't so hidden you're welcome to go back to that collection read that one um a song transmuted which isn't in this book or isn't in either book but is somewhere online and um technically everything is closed today is also in that world even though it's, yeah. uh, there's only one character who carries over um and that's just me playing with it again but but uh yeah i think i think that stories can have a second life in that way, uh, especially if they're available online. Um, it's trickier. It's trickier when they're not. And I think people will seek them out, but not in the same way. And if there's a collection, it's definitely easier. Um, the other thing I was going to say a minute ago with regard to themed anthologies was just that uh, I think this goes back to something much earlier in the conversation, but, but that's when I, when I'm trying to figure out what it is I do right now and how I spend my time. Um, the that's where I fall down. Like I know that I like I'm aware of my ability to overpromise, and I'm aware uh, that I'm not a fast writer, um, nor am I a fast reader. So the more things I promise to write and read, the the worse my backlog gets. And and so I've I've sort of stopped saying yes to very many of those at all, um, just just because I don't want to be a person who doesn't deliver what I promise. And uh, so far I haven't ever bailed on anyone that I said that I would write a story for. And I am trying to keep to that. So sometimes that means saying no to things that sound terrific. Um, if I just don't feel like they, like I'm going to give it its proper due. Yeah. Well, that kind of segues in, into a logical question, which is this book is out in the world right now. It's been out you know, for a, a couple of weeks and is readily accessible to the world. You said that you're, up to your elbows in a in a new book. What's next for Sarah Pinsker? Uh, fiction wise, uh, there uh, I've got a story coming out in Deadlands, and uh, I think there's a story coming in Asimov soon. And I need to write something new. I, I have a couple of things that are that are in various stages of doneness. Um, there's a novella there that I hope I can talk about soon, and there is a thing that has not told me what it is yet but it's it's well on its way and there's the novel and and a whole lot of stuff that I want to uh I, I have a friend who just said congratulations the, the semester is finally over like you know I'm just turning in my grades this week and and that's that's all great uh, and now you can relax and I said no no now is when I start my real job um, <laughs> yeah. so so I'm going to try to get all those things done before fall. Um, and I only teach one class per semester. I don't know how people teach more, but uh, but I've I've got another another 400 level class in the in the fall, and I'm also teaching at Cat uh, Rambo's uh, Spain retreat in the fall. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I, and yeah, and I, I'm guest of honor at Capclave, so that's cool. But congratulations. Um, and, Thank you. And yeah, so I'm just trying to write in between then and and not accidentally overprogram myself so much that I don't get the writing done when I should be. Writing. I do have a, a question which I should have asked earlier and we're coming toward the end, but I have to ask it because I've talked to writers who can teach ridiculous loads and still enjoy writing. Jeff Ford is the classic example. He just was teaching like 14, 12 or 15 semester hours. Uh, and, 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 you know, earning a closet full of world fantasy words while he was doing it. 
Other writers, who I probably shouldn't name, hate teaching. It absolutely keeps them from writing anything. They can't wait for the semester to get over so they can get on with a real job. Where do you fall in that spectrum? Does teaching help or hinder your writing? Somewhere in between. Um, th this semester, I tried an experiment and I said, uh, I'm going to, uh, every time that my students have a deadline, I, d I give all the students the same deadline instead of rotating through the class. Um, so, so they have three deadlines in the semester. And I said, every time they have a story due, I have a story due. And I thought that was a great idea and it would work so well. And, um, and, and I wrote the first one and that's the one that I, uh, that I, uh, is going to be in Deadlands. Uh, but what I didn't consider was edits. And so um, Elise sent it back and said, uh, would you consider this and this? And I said, yes, that's great, because I, I was considering this and this. Like the second I sent it off to you, I was thinking about that. Um, but the edits took the next month. And so so then I didn't get the second one done. And by the third one, I was tired. Um, and so, so <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm moving forward on things, but not at the pace that even that I hold my students to. Um, and I look at what I've written to them and I know that I, you know, like, you know, I've got a, there's a novella's worth of, of comments to my students that, that probably is a novella that I didn't write, but, um, I'm enjoying it. You know, it's, it's still pretty new to me. This is my fifth semester doing it. Um, and I'm, I'm still really enjoying it. I cannot fathom teaching more than one class. I don't know how anyone does that and has any other pursuit yeah. whatsoever um but but i for for the for the load that i'm teaching and and for the particular students i'm teaching i do find it uh invigorating uh i just need to figure out how to how to balance it a little better um yeah well the good okay. news is you well, get reliably paid for teaching that's not true of writing yeah that 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 part is definitely nice uh just just to know yeah those, those weird buckets that, that uh, fiction payments come in. Uh, it, rem it reminds me of when I was making music full time and I would think I was doing really well, everything was going fine. And then um, the van broke down in Wisconsin or, or I would get sick and I didn't have insurance and these things just like all, you know, and the money was just gone all of a sudden. And I, uh, I had a lot of anxiety over that, that, that uh, went away when I, started doing other things in addition to, to music um and I, I find the same thing like like yes i'm maybe i'm writing a little bit less but but there's an anxiety that is removed and also i get to be around people which which is mm -hmm. a nice novelty um you know there, there's a lot of solitude to writing and it's nice to to be around students and and hear them talking when they're not talking to me and and you know that kind of thing definitely well, we should probably wind up there because we're at the end of the, our hour. Uh, Lost Places is out from Small Beer Books right now and is available from all good and uh, re retailers wherever you might look, along with its predecessors. Uh, sooner or later, everything falls into the sea and your novel, We Are Satellites. But for now, Sarah Pinsker, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. It was a pleasure as always. And until next time, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.